Hello and welcome to Stick Together, Australia's only national radio show all about workers' rights and social justice. Stick Together is produced at 3CR Radio in Melbourne and broadcast to you around the country on Community Radio Network. I'm Dennis Robotyuk. Well, it looks like Australia is now strapped in for an early election, as the bill to reintroduce the ABCC has failed to pass the Senate 36 votes to 34. Previously, Malcolm Turnbull has vowed to trigger a double dissolution election for July 2nd of this year if the bill fails to pass. It is now up to the union movement to organize and answer Turnbull in kind. Putting the Liberals last will not be enough. It is time to be organized movements and assemblies against every aspect of austerity that has been imposed upon us in the last few years, from cuts to education, cuts to health and the housing crisis, the attempts to criminalize the CFMEU, and so much more. On today's show, we will talk about something similar taking place in the United States, with the Bernie Sanders phenomenon firing up the political scene as millions of ordinary Americans are feeling the burn and organizing for the Democratic Socialist candidate. Simultaneously, the industrial fight in the Midwest has sparked off, with the Chicago Teachers Union organizing strike action throughout Illinois, while in Maryland, over 35,000 communication workers at Verizon have gone on strike to protest insecurity and outsourcing. Joining us for that part of the show will be Jerome Small, the industrial organizer for Social Alternative, who recently returned from the United States. Furthermore, we will discuss the status of young workers currently under- undertaking unpaid internships and the best ways we can organize and unionize them amid the rapid growth in casual and insecure work. Joining us for that will be Kilia Fitzpatrick from the Young Workers Center at Trades Hall. We have with us now Jerem Small, the industrial organ- organizer for Socialist Alternative. Jerem, welcome back to Stick Theater. Cheers, Dennis. Great to be here. Right. Well, first of all, Jerem, did you feel the burn? <laughs> it's hard not to when you're in a room. I did get to go to one of the Bernie Sanders rallies in Milwaukee yeah. in Wisconsin just the night before the uh, primary there a couple of weeks ago. Just to maybe to take half a step back... The level for a visitor from Australia, and we're used to being pummeled by Liberal governments and Labor governments and Liberal governments before that, but going and just walking the streets of the United States, talking to people in Chicago, which I was for two weeks with a couple of side trips, the level of social crisis in that society is something above and beyond what you see walking most of the streets of Melbourne. Um, The level of disintegration of public infrastructure, Um, I got to go up to Flint in Michigan, a former industrial town, still an industrial Mm. town, which has been poisoned, like 100,000 people Mm. uh, poisoned by the unelected administrator directing corrosive water um, through city pipes, Um, and the effects of that lead poisoning and other poisoning will be with the people of Flint for you know, the rest of this generation, basically. Um, and this is just seems to be a pretty much everyday occurrence. I spent a bunch of time hanging around with the um, on the streets of Chicago with the Chicago Teachers Union, their yes. spectacular strike. The level, like, the st- we can talk about the strike, but the level of attacks on mm-hmm. public education by these incredibly well-financed right-wing, um, you know, attack organisations that want to dismember public education in the United States and carve it up and get their own snouts into that trough of public funding um, is just extraordinary. Um, You know, elements are the same of what we've seen here in Australia, but it's Mm -hmm. all on steroids in the United States. So when it comes to Bernie Sanders, for him to articulate what a whole lot of people have been feeling and saying privately and, you know, thinking and, you know, feeling in their own hearts or whatever, for him to to put it together, um, 
you know, this very clear class message, you know, um, it's, it's the Walton family, the richest family in the United States. Um, you know, this is a line from his standard campaign speech. The Walton family have the wealth of 40% of the American people. Like, you know, just one family is as rich as 40% of the people of the United States. And the amount of subsidies that that family gets uh, for their employees from taxpayers in the form of food stamps. So his line, one of his good lines is... Um, you know, so I say to the Walton family, get yourselves off welfare and pay your workers a decent wage. And it, just to turn that around, you know, like ordinary people, you know, we're so used to being blamed for, you know, we're sponging on welfare, we're the bludgers and so on. And Bernie Sanders turns that around. And to be part of a crowd of a few thousand people, um, you know, like young people who are just coming into politics for the first time, older people who are just, you know, just hearts full of anger and anguish about what's happened to the society that um, that they lived in in the 1970s and the 1980s um, is quite an experience. And you wouldn't want to discount the effect that Bernie Sanders has had on the overall political climate. Mm. Even just looking at the debate, just the terms of the debate, Bernie Sanders says we have to release, um, you know, effectively half a million people, from you know, a huge number of people from prison in the United States. The question to him from the journalist isn't, your, you know, some right-wing thing of you're putting dangerous criminals back on the streets. The question is, oh, you're probably not going to release as many people as what you say, are you? You know, like it's well, just yeah. it's shifted the, the thing. Yeah, the whole the whole sort of mm-hmm. center of political gravity has, has started to move. That's yeah. right, and and even I mean, obviously, and you know what Bernie Sanders is doing builds on the work of, uh, you know, the fight for fifteen activists, Black Lives mm-hmm. Matter activists, um, you know, Chicago teachers, and so many others. But he can mm-hmm. put it together. Even you know the, the debate over. The $15 minimum wage, there was no questions about, you know, this is irresponsible, this will send the economy down the toilet, um, you know, where's the money going to come from? Like, those sort of questions weren't even asked. It's just, well, you know, I'm for 15, Hillary says she's only for 12. Like the, So it's really shifted the terms of the debate. Now, mm-hmm. I was only in the United States for a couple of weeks. Um, it's a big country, yes. you know, and so I, what I saw was a slice. Um, for me, the, the tragedy of, of Bernie Sanders was that all of that really positive sentiment um, about, you know, there is an alternative to the stuff that's been happening, being done to uh, American society and to uh, workers in the United States for the last few decades. Like, all of that hope is being channeled by the Sanders campaign into the Democratic Party. And, like, I mean, the Democratic Party looks bad enough from this side of the Pacific, but close up, it is... Like, it's not even a party in the sense that we would understand a party with membership, uh, branches, you know, policy committees that you can participate in and so on. Like, if you you, you can understand the Democratic Party, it's much more like a a consortium of money and political power that comes together pretty much in its own interests. And that, to me, is the tragedy of the Sanders campaign, is that all of that positive sentiment, um, you know, is being channeled organisationally into that particular political machine, which will dash those hopes. And there is no real sort of uh, attempts to translate the grassroots movement behind Sanders into, you know, some greater political social movements like you know either in the either the industrial organizing or as I said Black Lives Matter movement. Look, there's, there's bits and pieces of that. The the reason I went to Chicago was to attend a Labor Notes uh, conference, which their slogan is putting the movement back in the labor movement. Um, and so it's you know Chicago teachers, Teamsters for a Democratic Union, a whole you know steel workers reformists. Um, 
you know, a whole bunch of the more sort of left-wing and militant sections of the uh, uh, union movement in the United States come together. Excuse me. So as part of that, um, I got to sit in on one of the Labor for Bernie meetings. From what, and again, so I'm only looking at a slice. Um, from what I could see, there didn't seem to be a whole lot of actual organising on the ground, you know, worker-to-worker organising, workplace organising behind that campaign that I could see. Um, and, you know, the, I'm sure, it's, like I say, it's a big country, there might be all sorts of stuff that I haven't been able to see. Um, the problem, of course, is that um, all of the organisers um, in the Bernie campaign, like the, the name of the game is turning out people to vote in those primaries. That's right. Now, a lot of those primaries, such as New York, such as Washington, you can only vote for Bernie Sanders if you're a registered Democrat. So straight away, the organisers have to basically, like your first step is enticing people into the fold of the Democratic Party, um, which has to be one of the least democratic so-called political parties that's ever existed. Um, So that's some of the contradictions of the Bernie Sanders campaign. Now, people mentioned Bernie Sanders pretty much everywhere I went and, you know, saw it as this huge positive. But exactly how that will translate into concrete detailed on the ground organising I think is a pretty open question and I didn't see a lot of evidence of that happening uh, when I sort of moved around yeah that's right and uh, just going back to, to, the, to the current labour movement situation in the United States uh, you, uh, yeah, you, me- you mentioned that you were in Chicago and you uh, got a chance to uh, uh, see, see some of the work that the Chicago Teachers Union have been doing you know with the uh, <clears throat> with the one day walkout and strike action of 20, 27,000 members on April April 1st. How did uh, how is that all uh, progressing? That was a pretty extraordinary day. Um, as I mentioned just before, the, the sort of attacks that public school education uh, is coming under in the United States is extraordinary. Like there are, are very powerful forces at work trying to rip uh, public education apart in terms of the charter school movement, in terms of open privatisation of schools, in terms of... Um, you know, enormously wealthy interests such as the Gateses, such as the Waltons, um, you know, the richest entities in the United States, trying to get their um, $600 billion is spent every year by governments around the United States on public school education. It's almost the equivalent of the military budget. And if you can imagine the sort of financial and industrial interests that want to get their hands on the military budget, the same is true of education. You add to that all sorts of political considerations of union busting, one in four of the union movement uh, in of all union members in the United States, one in four of those union members is a member of a teachers' union, so mm-hmm. they're very much in the eye of um, the neoliberals' assault. Um, and there's real estate interests as well. In a gentrifying neighbourhood, you know, one way to break up a community and free up that real estate is to break up the school. Um, and the Chicago, the Chicago uh, the board of Chicago Public Schools is an unelected board appointed by Democratic Mayor uh, Rahm Emanuel, former merchant banker, multimillionaire, um, and appointed with a whole bunch of property and banking uh, millionaires and billionaires. Um, and so you've got a very powerful interest there. Eight years ago, um, if we take it back a decade ago, the Chicago Teachers Union was something, as far as I understand and from what people told me, something of an empty shell. The structures are there, uh, people are loyal to their union, but there wasn't much movement going on. There was not much being done by the leadership to mobilise people against these attacks on public education, and a large section of the membership can respond to that just with you know, sort of cynicism and resignation and so on. Eight years ago, there was a reform group formed within the Chicago Teachers Union called the Coalition of Rank-and-File Educators. Mm-hmm. 
And they started, I mean, they did a whole bunch of things. They did reading groups on the history of reform movements and so on. But one of the things they started to do was to make an issue of every single one of the school closures that was happening in Chicago. So they would turn up to the school, they would link people up. Okay, this Mm -hmm. is what's happening at your school. We'll link you up with someone. The exact same thing happened to their school two years ago. They can talk you through what to expect. Mm -hmm. And at least, like they lost a lot of those battles, but at least they made a contest and they started to create a different sort of a tone in the Chicago Teachers Union. 2010, they won an election in the union, took control of it. Then they used that as a platform for an extremely intensive and detailed campaign of organising throughout the Chicago public school system. That led to the spectacular strike in 2012 that people might know about, a nine-day teacher strike that really got the attention of the whole city and got the attention of the whole country. And in an era where teacher contracts and other public employees uh, were being you know, ripped apart by this austerity drive, the Chicago teachers managed to hold their own, which was a major achievement at that time. This time around, teachers are now out of contract again, and the Chicago Public School Board has offered them a contract, which is actually not too bad, according to a bunch of the teachers I talked to. The problem is, the Chicago Public School Board has financed itself in a way that it, the phrase that the teachers' union used, it's broke on purpose. Like they have engineered the finances of the public school system. So even the greatest contract that you could sign now will not actually be able to be honoured. So what the Chicago Teachers Union uh, are attempting to do is to put together a a coalition of, um, um, you know, with themselves at the heart, using industrial action to, to form this broader coalition of everyone else affected by austerity to try to create a political uh, crisis, I suppose you could say, within Chicago and the state of Illinois to free up that funding. There is an enormous amount of wealth like you know, flowing through the streets of Chicago. You just walk downtown. There is just this incredible amount of wealth in the banking system and so on. But Mayor Rahm Emanuel and his good mate, the Republican uh, hedge fund manager, billionaire Bruce Rauner, don't want to tax that wealth to actually pay for the social services. So... What we saw, finally to get back to your question, <laughs> what we saw on the 1st of April uh, was, a stri- was a strike by the 27, 28,000 members of the Chicago Teachers Union, um, and it was unlike any labour action that I've been a part of. Um, very high level of part- participation from the teachers. Every single teacher that I talked to through the day could explain to me chapter and verse exactly why the system was broke on purpose, where the money should come from, all of the rorts, um, you know, of Rahm Emanuel and his good mate, yeah. uh, Bruce Rauner and so on. Um, like, I was very impressed with just the the, the, the sort of organising that the CTU has done, you know, to mobilise its own membership and then to, yeah. to organise from the schools out into the community. Um, so there were... 6.30am to 9am, all of the schools, like there was mass picketing at every single school. After that time, there was a whole series of actions through the day um, involving striking teachers, supporting striking airport workers who were fighting for a contract out at O'Hare International Airport, uh, supporting, um, you know, the protests for... Um, you know, money for education, not in mass incarceration outside one of the, uh, you know, the Illinois Youth Centre, a youth detention facility. There was a protest um, uh, against deportations. There was a protest against uh, the closure of a biscuit factory, a major employer in the south of Chicago. Um, the protest that I was at um, in those few hours after the after the each school did its picketing was at Chicago State University. This is a majority black 
university, fairly small, about I think about five and a half thousand students, nine thousand staff, uh, nine hundred staff. They have received. They usually get one third of their budget from the state government, the Illinois state government. They have received not one cent of that money for the last nine, nine months, and they're on the brink of closure. So there's a protest down there with students and staff, and of course, you know, Karen Lewis, the president of the Chicago yeah. Teachers Union, other striking teachers, and so on. So Overall, cool. just this really impressive, you know, and the Chicago Teachers Union being at the centre in it of it, but pulling in all of these different interests, which have been subject to austerity, subject to racism and subject to the sort of cutbacks that Chicago Teachers Union, other unions, Transport mm. Workers Union, mm. SEIU, uh, the local government, Employees yeah. Union, AFSCME and so on. So, so, so it all feels like it's all, it's all sort of coming uh, coming together in, in a united campaign. All right, Joe, John, well, th- uh, thank you so much for joining us on Sigdia and thank you for giving us such a thorough update on the, you know, where they're mostly well, in Chicago and other places. Cheers. Thank States. you, Dennis, and thanks to Stick Together and 3CR. You're listening to Stick Together, workers' stories and union news. Broadcast around the country every week on the Community Radio Network. Welcome back. We've just heard from Jerome Small about the Bernie phenomenon and the labour movement in the United States. Next up, we'll talk about the crisis in the internship sector, as thousands of students and young people increasingly find it difficult to obtain meaningful and paying work experience, while in certain cases they're even forced to pay for internships in order to obtain the work experience to progress their career. We now have with us Kelia Fitzpatrick from the Young Workers' Centre of the Trades Hall. Kelia, welcome to Stick Together. Hello, nice to be here. Wonderful. Now, uh, Kilia, of course, sort of looking at the problem of of internships, especially unpaid internships, I guess some of the key problems we are looking at over there is, I say, lack of security. You know, similar, in some ways, similar to the labor hire firms, but also lack of any any meaningful prospects or assurances of employment once the internship uh, comes to the end. Yeah, yeah, you're exactly right. So not only is this precarious because it, there isn't exactly an employment relationship there um, but the person isn't being paid for their time with the employer uh, and they are, they have no guarantees that it will lead to future employment. I think in the past internships when they were less prevalent in Australia um, were more likely to lead to a job afterwards but increasingly young people are doing two, three internships, not getting paid and not getting a job out of it at the end anyway. So it's it's definitely, um, you know, even more problematic than casual or precarious work for a young person because they're getting um, no remuneration out of it whatsoever. The way you mentioned it, it also sounds like sort of the growth in unpaid internships has been parallel to the growth in I would say labor hire and casual uh, casual work throughout throughout all the sectors of the economy. Definitely. And I mean it the rise of internships it it fits in with that narrative of what's happening to young people in Australia when you look at young people and work. So, you know, youth unemployment is always much higher than general unemployment levels um, in a country. So it's generally been at around 11 to 12% in Australia since around 2008. Um, but we've also seen the rise of um, underemployment. Yes. And 
you know, compared to previous generations, um, a staggering number of young Australians are now underemployed. So it's now one in six young people is considered to be underemployed. Um, in the 1970s, that was around one in 30. So the jump is quite staggering. Um, and as you said, casual work as well. So in, in for example, 1992, only 34% of young people were in casual work. Mm-hmm. Um, in 2013, which is the most recent kind of snapshot that we have, 50% of young people are working casually. So, you know, there's a lot of things going on structurally that mean that young people are in a situation that's just ripe for exploitation. So there's so few jobs available for young people when they're exiting um, education um, that employers are now saying, we need people with experience. So now young people are competing for the experience that they need to get ahead and meaning that some people are working for free to get that experience. So it's quite quite extreme. There's some circumstances where... um, people are paying to get unpaid work opportunities. So last year we saw a law firm in Adelaide charging $22,000 for an unpaid internship with them. Quite crazy. Sorry, sorry, sorry. The law firm was charging $22,000 per year for the... To do what, exactly? Well, for the person to get a uh, work experience opportunity with them. Oh, that's disgusting. Yeah, to get to get the internship opportunity, the young person had to pay for it, and we've seen similar in the United States. Um, um, Vogue magazine, um, so you know the publishing industry, um, used to auction off its internship opportunities. So you'd literally get the parents, the the the, the children of rich and famous, you know, competing and at an auction to get their child this internship at Vogue. Um, it's it's crazy, but this is how desperate people are to get certain employment experience on their CV so they can get a job. Yes, and I think that's another problem, another sort of uh, key problem, uh, sort of in the area of internships, is that this it's not isolated to a particular industry, a particular sector. We are seeing this, you know, right across uh, the board, you know, in finance and accounting and marketing and those sort of white collar jobs you know, in charity charity groups and even political organizations uh, there, so... Exactly. I mean, in the past, the creative industries has always kind of had a problem with unpaid work. So in film and fashion, it's kind of always been the case. And even in journalism, it's always been the case that you've had to work for free uh, until someone saw you, thought you were talented and then offered you paid work. But you're right, it's spreading to particularly white-collar industries. And you've got big law firms and big accounting firms, um, you know, now participating in, in in a practice that was once, you know, quite isolated to the creative industries. Yes. So with all these sort of challenges and problems in mind... Um how do you feel we would be able to say, not just recruit the interns into unions, but actually help unpaid in- interns to, uh, to make the employers value their work and pay them accordingly? It's a hard. It's a really hard yes, one. Yes. I mean, I think unions need to start taking the issue of young people and internships um, a little more seriously. What What needs to happen is that an internship needs to be defined in the Fair Work Act. It's currently not not set out what exactly it is and that makes it very, very, very difficult to regulate them. So at the moment, um, 
there is no distinction. It only mentions a vocational placement. So only internships that are related to education or training are covered. So there's there's definitely needs some need for law reform. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think more broadly, universities have a big role to play in this. Of course. Um, they are part of the problem because they're allowing internship agencies and employers to to you know get their students to perform free labor for them um, as part of you know work this this focus on work integrated learning which has become a bit of a mantra in higher education um, without making sure that the that the student is actually getting an educational outcome from it and actually you know being trained properly by the employer rather than just you know, performing the work of an employee. Um, so that's another thing that could be thought about, that, you know, talking to universities and putting some pressure on universities to really, really apply a bit more scrutiny to these internships and the employers that are coming them to get students free labour. Um, and I think unions, specifically what unions can do, um, and it's something that the Media Alliance has done, um, Unions should be offering discounted or free student membership. Of course. Um, and they should be providing information to students about what a good ethical internship looks like. So just last week, the Media Alliance released its own specific guidelines on media internships. And this came as a, re- as a result of the announcement from Fairfax, uh, who we know cut 100 and well, announced recently that they'll be cutting 120 journalist jobs. Um, shortly after that announcement, advertising a seven-week unpaid internship um, in their Fairfax editorial teams. So, you know, the link being that they're cutting proper jobs and getting unpaid interns to come on and do some of that work. Mm. Um, So they were rightly very, very frustrated by that on behalf of their members who are losing their jobs. But they put together these guidelines, as I mentioned, and this, you know, steps students through how can they tell if their internship is legal or not? And it asks questions like, you know, how long does it go for? Does it go any longer than a semester? Um, Are you getting genuine hands-on experience and education and skills uh, and training opportunities there? Um, Will you be getting a letter of recommendation at the conclusion of the program? Mm-hmm. Do you, are you getting time off for study? Like these types of questions, the Media Alliance have formulated a long-term, alongside Interns Australia, which is an advocacy organisation that was set up with some, by some young people a few years ago who have done amazing work in this area. Um, mm-hmm. So the, that, that, that's what the Media Alliance have done, and I think that's you know, a really, really good example of what unions can be doing. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is working with Interns Australia directly. Interns Australia have set up a national fair internship pledge where employers can be invited to get the Interns Australia seal of approval on their internship. Um, and that's all about quality control. So making sure that employers um, can provide internships that are actually delivering um, things to young people that can, you know, help them in their careers rather than having young people performing um, work for free that they should really be getting paid for and, you know, having no significant training or education component to that experience. So mm-hmm. Interns Australia and the Media Alliance are two really good examples of what we should be doing in this space. Absolutely. Kelly, thank you so much for joining us uh, on Stick Together. My pleasure. Check out the Young Workers Centre website uh, for future events on similar topics. 
That was Kilia Fitzpatrick from Trades Hall Council talking about organizing young workers in internships. Well, that'll be all for the show today. I'm Dennis Rogatyuk. Thanks for listening to today's episode and make sure to tune in same time next week.